This week, ancient Japanese paper art on the nanoscale. I was told I could graduate when I could create a, a graphene crane. And I have not yet hit that point, but they allowed me to graduate anyway. So, <laughs> someday. And scientists are building tiny versions of our organs. That's not as complex as the original organ, but it certainly it retains a lot of the features. Plus how mitochondria power our muscles. This is The Nature Podcast for July the 30th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. By now, you probably know that graphene is a pretty miraculous material. The thinnest substance in existence, stronger than steel and a super-fast conductor of electricity. Graphene has these talents because it's two-dimensional, a one-atom-thick sheet. But sheets are boring. So a group at Cornell University in New York State have figured out a way to use graphene to make tiny 3D structures and machines. They used kirigami, the ancient Japanese art of paper cutting. They've sliced and diced graphene to create hinges, stretchy transistors and springs, the simple building blocks of mini-machines. What they're for? Anybody's guess. Reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to Cornell University scientist and artist Melina Bliss. Melina explained how her project began. So it really originally came from playing with large sheets of graphene that had been released off of the surface um, and lifted up into water where we could really poke at it and develop a physical intuition for how it behaves as a material. So kind of as an artist would take um, a sheet of tissue paper or a sheet of construction paper and start to think that you know, she could do different things from those materials, um, graphene really started to feel to us like a material that we could use like paper. And over time, we realized that graphene behaves a lot like paper quantitatively. But at the time, we just sort of had an intuition that it behaves qualitatively like paper. And so um, Paul McEwen, my graduate advisor, told me, go to the arts library, um, find some paper arts books and see what we can poach. Do you remember what you found and, and what maybe then the first thing was that you tried with graphene instead of paper? So the first thing that I remember us trying was um, what shows up as a in-plane spring. So it's basically a whole bunch of offset cuts that allows you to stretch the graphene or the paper. And I found it at a website called origamiresourcecenter.com, I believe, or .org. Um, and it was labeled as a children's kirigami decoration, the easiest um, hanging mobile. So <laughs> we took what was uh, considered the simplest kirigami model and scaled it down to a one atom thick sheet of graphene um, and created an incredibly tiny, incredibly resilient spring. And with kirigami, the, you know, with paper, presumably you use a, a Stanley knife and, and your own hands. What kind of equipment do you use to do this with graphene? You use light. Um, we essentially are using similar techniques to um, the computer chip industry. You take a simple pattern as a mask and flood it with light, um, which patterns materials on the surface that are sensitive to light. And that allows you to cut the graphene essentially using just a masking process rather than using scissors or your hands. And then how do you go about actually manipulating it? Because as we said, this is at the really tiny nanoscale. Exactly. Um, we use a computer-controlled robot and a white light microscope. So you can actually look through the eyepiece and see what you're doing, which makes it really easy. And we take a really sharp needle on a robot arm 
and there's a little dial um, on the robot that essentially you can use to control the X and Y positions of the needle. Um, and that really starts to let you feel in this slightly abstracted way like you have your hands on it. What, what other kinds of shapes can you make with graphene that are inspired by Kirigami? We've done a number of them. Um, we've made springs in plane that have different types of patterns, so they can stretch more or less. So they can be softer or stiffer. Um, and it turns out that that can cover a huge range from you know, very stiff springs to incredibly, incredibly soft springs. Um, we can make pyramids out of plane springs that uh, create sort of a three-dimensional shape that you could imagine setting down on top of something. Um, we've cut spirals that create this beautiful... Um, if you pull up on the center, it creates this beautiful mobile shape that looks sort of like, um, almost like a jellyfish arm. So the techniques of kirigami, I think, um, could be drawn on to create all sorts of more complex shapes. We've started with the simplest ones and tried to understand their mechanics. Um, but it seems to me like there's a lot of potential here for building more complex materials that have really customizable mechanical properties. So rather than just doing some fantastic art on the nanoscale, this actually might have some, some uses. Some, you might be able to make some components. Exactly. Um, starting to think about building tiny machines. And tiny machines are really hard, um, and they tend to be very complex. And this is a very simple way and a very powerful design technique um, for building things with really customizable spring constants, um, interesting electrical properties, not just out of graphene, but out of other two-dimensional materials that are just starting to appear with other electrical or optical or mechanical properties. I had a little look at some Kirigami designs uh, ahead of talking to you, and I found some that were incredibly complex, things like um, London's Tower Bridge even, made from cut paper. Now, I doubt that's possible with graphene, um, but is there anything that you're dying to create or that, that that's on your wish list? Oh, yes, there is. Um, I would, as an artist and perhaps a little bit as a scientist, would love to be able to do origami. So graphene is perfect for kirigami because it doesn't crease. And kirigami doesn't usually require paper to crease until you start building much more complex shapes. Um, but origami, you really have to be able to make a fold and have that stay. So I would love to figure out a way to do that with graphene or with a graphene composite material. Um, my ultimate sort of, I was told I could graduate when I could create a, a graphene crane. And I have not yet hit that point, but they allowed me to graduate anyway. So <laughs> someday. Melina Bleese there, bridging art and science really pretty neatly. And if you want to see some of Melina's nano kirigami in action, we've got just the video for you. Find it at nature.com forward slash news or on our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Coming up, Adam's flexing his muscles and I'm off to visit a lab doing biology in miniature. First, though, it's the research highlights with Noah Baker. Constrictor snakes squeeze their prey for so long that their hearts fail, according to a grizzly news study. It was thought that constrictors gradually tighten their grip to suffocate their victims. Researchers monitored the heart rate and blood properties of rats as they were being squeezed. The rat's blood pressure dropped after only a few seconds, but the snake kept squeezing for minutes until eventually the rat's heart failed. The results suggest that the snakes only release their grip once they feel their prey's heart has given up. For more gory details, go to the Journal of Experimental Biology. Want to use marijuana without getting high? Many patients would like to, because THC, the main psychoactive chemical of marijuana, can act as an effective painkiller. 
it can also cause forgetfulness and paranoia. But mice lacking a particular serotonin receptor don't seem to get these negative symptoms. So researchers gave normal mice a drug to stop these serotonin receptors interacting with THC receptors. They found that mice still benefited from pain relief, but without any memory loss. Not tempting for stoners, but it could reduce the downsides of medical marijuana use. More on this study at PLOS Biology. Earlier this week, Kerry went to Cambridgeshire to meet the team doing biology in miniature and brought back this report. The village of Hinkston near Cambridge in the UK looks like it was made out of dolls' houses, quaint little timber-framed and brick buildings, and a small pub. Just next to the village is the Sanger Institute. It's a sprawling genome biology campus, and it's where I went to meet Matthew Garnett, whose lab makes the cellular equivalent of dolls' houses. I think the analogy is fair in that it is a simplified version of the tissue from which it was originally derived. Matthew and his team make what are called organoids, tiny little versions of body parts. Biologists around the world have been building collections of these mini-organs. Notable ones include things like liver and brain. Um, and equally, you can begin to derive these organoids from tissues from different diseases to understand them better and think about how you might treat those diseases more effectively. Now, an organoid obviously isn't exactly the same as the real thing. That's not as complex as the original organ, but it certainly it retains a lot of the features. And they, in terms of the function or the way they work, that's also more accurate. And certainly more than some earlier cell models that have been used in the laboratory. So traditionally, cell lines have been used, and these are a much more artificial system. Cell lines are usually pinned flat on a plate. But organoids are grown in a 3D environment, just like in our bodies. They float in a coloured, nutritious broth, like a miso soup for cells. I was curious to see how similar they could really be to the organs they represent, at thousandths of the size. In the lab, Matthew's postdoc Haley Francis put some tumour organoids she's been growing under a microscope to show me. Now you've brought up in front of me, on this microscope here, a little dish, for, it looks like a little egg box uh, full of petri yeah, it dishes. Does they're look not, like an egg box. They're not very big, are they? Um, and you've magnified it here for me. And on this iPad-sized microscope screen, can you, can you tell me, Haley, what we're looking at here? Um, so each one of these, I guess, spheroids is an organoid. So they're generally about um, 50 microns in diameter, so they're this small. Um, um, these are, this is a colon cancer organoid. Um, and if this was a normal, it's what we would describe as a mini gut. Um, and by that, what we mean is around the outside here, even though you can't see in the magnification, you, you would have all of the um, cell types that you would find in an organoid. Um, they are organized as what they would be in the colon. Um, and they differentiate, so generally you have these crypt-like structures where the stem cells reside in the bottom and they differentiate up into all the different cell like types. Little valleys with little the Little valleys, cells exactly, the and they differentiate up. And in the colon as well we have the lumen, so that's where your food moves through. Um, and that's what these structures do, they enclose upon themselves and the centre provides the lumen with all these different valleys of crypts around the outside. Now these are cancer organoids, so that means that the structure is completely lost. And therefore, what we find when we have these different um, cultures from different patients, they can look very different. And then, I can't believe I'm looking at loads of guts. I mean, it's, it's 
it's that's cra- fascinating. It's crazy, yeah. isn't it? They, yeah, they look like blobby little cells, mm. but you're telling me that they have all of the components that you might expect in a kind of cylindrical yeah. colon, basically, yes. but in this microcosm. These cellular dolls' houses are more than just trinkets. Matthew and his team plan to make organoids that represent all the different types of colon cancer to find out what treatments might work against which cancer types. That's been difficult with cell lines. We want models that reflect all the different types of tumours that exist in patient populations. Models that represent the diversity of patients that are observed in the clinic. So maybe one day, scientists could build an organoid to match every patient's cancer. Obviously, by being able to derive a high proportion of patients' samples, that does open up the opportunity to personalise medicine. I think the thought of being able to derive organoids for every patient within the NHS who you know comes in and gets diagnosed with cancer, that's, that's huge. You'd need factories to build these things. So I think that's why at this moment in time we just foresee building these large banks to be the best way to move forward. And then once you've built the libraries, you know, bombard them with different types of drug to see, you know, does it kill this one or this one or this one with this genetic background or this genetic background. But organoids are not as perfect a replica of organs as they could be. They are unrefined doll's houses. Some lack detail. Some just can't be built at all. There is a need to still optimise the conditions that we grow these in, this special broth or media that we grow them in. There are some organoids that don't really quite look like the tissue from which they came from or are missing some types of cells. There are some organoids that will grow, be able to grow in the lab for several months or half a year, but then will eventually start to die. And there are some tumor types or cell types, certain types of brain cells from patients, things like sarcomas, which are a specific type of tumor that we often see in, in children that we just can't grow organoids from currently and we need to figure out what is the, the right media composition to support those. And then in 20 years, just like space tourism has evolved from people being able to build spacecraft, I'll just be able to have a copy of my own brain in a dish on my windowsill because I think that would be, I don't know, pretty good. You can charge me loads of money for it. It'll be like, it'll fund the rest of your research. I think the way that technology seems to move these days, that does seem possible, yes. <laughs> Maybe not a full brain, but something that approaches your, your brain, perhaps, yes. That was Matthew Garnett and Haley Francis at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute just outside Cambridge. There's a feature in Nature all about organoids. Check that out at nature.com news. And on our Twitter feed at Nature Podcast, there are some pictures of the organoids Matthew and Haley are using for their work. One, two, three. Adam, what are you doing? Oh, just pumping some iron. With, um, with a pencil? Well, I've got to start somewhere and ten. Very impressive. You know, Kerry, while I was doing that strenuous workout, I started wondering, how do muscle cells do what they do? Did you? Fancy that. What a segue. Yes, well, muscle cells use energy in a different way to most other cells. Usually cells direct their energy to one place, say the membrane where they release signals to other cells. But muscle cells need energy everywhere. The whole cell has to work to contract a muscle, so it's crowded with little energy burners. Getting power distributed across a muscle cell is no easy task. 
It's like supplying electricity to London versus supplying a small country town. It's a very challenging engineering problem, if you will, to let that contraction occur and still provide the energy throughout the cell. This is Bob Balaban of the University of Maryland, who's been trying to pin down how the cell tackles this engineering problem. There have been two proposals, and in each, molecules help to diffuse energy around the cell. To see which one of these systems was responsible, scientists had tried shutting each of them down in mice. Many were surprised that an animal would survive. That in itself was a remarkable surprise to scientists. Then that the removal or compromise of both of these facilitated diffusion mechanisms had very little impact on the normal function of the mouse. How can a mouse with either of these systems knocked out still move around pretty much normally? Something else must be responsible for spreading energy around muscle cells. But what? Mitochondria. Mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. They generate ATP, one of the cell's chief fuels. But could they also be playing some role in delivering energy around muscle cells? Bob and his team use cutting-edge 3D electron microscopy to investigate. What we found, quite remarkably, was that the vast majority of the capillaries in slow-twitch muscle fibers are actually embedded in grooves in the muscle cell that are surrounded by mitochondria. So this kind of led to the hypothesis that what if all these mitochondria are coupled together, but when we started tracing the mitochondria to work out their network, we discovered these path, these tracks of mitochondria running deep into the muscle. And what was your first reaction when you saw these images? It was about 11 o'clock at night. I was tracing them at home after a good pottery session, and I didn't get to sleep that night. And uh, we all knew that the game was going to change if this held up uh, through uh, you know, all the replications that one needs to do to make sure it just isn't an aberration. So from looking at these images, does it seem that the mitochondria aren't just functioning as power generators, they're also in some way functioning as kind of the power cables of the cell? We kind of visualize this right now and the way we're starting to model this is much the way you'd model the power grid of a city, where you have these regions that are generating most of the power and then you're, you're consuming elements uh, deeper inside the, inside the muscle. With relay stations, you may want to think of it, uh, of regions of high potential energy producing regions uh, also uh, occurring within the muscle itself. Now this seems like a big leap just from looking at some images. What did you do to test this hypothesis a bit further? So what was very important uh, proof that this coupling between all the mitochondria exchanging the membrane potential was occurring was to actually go into a cell and demonstrate that the mitochondrial membrane potential is actually communicating throughout the cell. So when we thought about this problem, we kind of visualized the mitochondrial network like a power grid in a city. And if we could go in and let's say drop the voltage in one region of that grid, you'd expect the other elements of the grid to drop as it gets pulled down by, uh, by this uh, decrease in potential. So the idea was is we found a compound that we could uh, locally uh, induce in the mitochondrion 
that would cause the center region of the cell to lose its membrane potential and then rapidly image does that drop in potential in the center of the grid result in a decrease in potential throughout the cell. And indeed, we found that to occur on a millisecond time scale. And so this does confirm that the mitochondria are able to transport this electric potential energy around the cell incredibly quickly. That would be the interpretation of that data, especially coupled with the pathway that we've actually imaged as well from the structural biology studies. It's pretty striking what fundamental information can be revealed by using cutting-edge imaging like this. Is, is there potential for further studies like these? These three-dimensional high-resolution images are changing the dogma. I can tell you there's many things in that 3D image that are going to be included with that manuscript that other people are going to use to look at other structures of the muscle that I think will be very intriguing. Uh, so I, it, it really is a time to go back and maybe look at some of our older ideas uh, using the full three-dimensional structures. And so I, I foresee that this type of kind of relook of cell biology on this nanometer scale over millimeter field of views is, is going to change a lot of perceptions we have of how things work. That was Bob Balaban, whose paper is at nature.com forward slash nature. Time now for the news, and reporter Ewan Calloway joins me in the studio. Now, first up, a story that's had a lot of coverage here in the UK press, and I'm sure in the US as well, two clinical trial results of what looks to be promising Alzheimer's treatments. Right. A little bit of background will help here. I think, that, I mean, the trials are promising in the context that they're not as big a failure as, as past studies have been. Maybe two or three years ago, there had just been a string of failures of very high profile, very costly drugs um, trying to prevent uh, the onset of Alzheimer's or slow the onset of Alzheimer's. These two new studies are basically the first evidence that drugs can slow the uh, onset of Alzheimer's. Basically, right now, there are no drugs out there and available that slow this disease. And it's seen by drug companies and public health authorities as one of the biggest uh, unmet needs in medicine. And that's the key, isn't it? Prevention has been extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible. These go some way towards maybe hinting that that might be possible. But a lot of the coverage has been pretty breathless. I mean... Do you think it warrants the kind of coverage it's had? I don't think so, personally, just having seen uh, and covered a lot of failures a few years ago. But I think that, that goes for mainstream press coverage of pretty much any, any clinical trial, you know, miracle cure, uh, first all successful Alzheimer's drug. That's not the case. What, in fact, these trials showed, one of them from a drug company, Eli Lilly, showed that their drug, solanuzumab, could slow cognitive decline in people with a very mild form of Alzheimer's by about 30%. They did not show that their drug actually improved the day-to-day -day lives of these people. Uh, the second trial of a drug, a much smaller trial of a drug from Biogen IDEC, showed similar results, though they weren't statistically significant. So it's encouraging, these results. Uh, we've had nothing but failure in the past. And, and so this could be maybe turning a corner, but I think it's too early to say that we've got Alzheimer's cures. They've shown some cognitive benefits, you were saying, um, but has the biological mechanism been changed here, this amyloid beta plaque that we hear so much about um, that's meant to be the cause of Alzheimer's? Yeah, and that might be the real importance of 
of these studies is that for for years we've had this idea that Alzheimer's is caused by uh, the buildup of amyloid beta or beta amyloid, however you want to say it, which is this kind of protein fragment that, that aggregates and forms these plaques in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. But we've never had any proof that these plaques, these beta amyloid plaques, were actually the cause of Alzheimer's. Maybe they could be a consequence. And so what these drugs do, both of them, is that they, present, they prevent the buildup of these, these, uh, these amyloid plaques. And so that's tentative evidence that the amyloid hypothesis, as it's been described, might actually be the case. Um, so I think that 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 might send a lot of drug companies and a lot of researchers looking for for drugs that that work a little better. Or I think what we're going to see in the future is that people are going to be testing Alzheimer's drugs in patients uh, very early in onset or patients who haven't even shown symptoms. I think that that's really where the research and clinical trials are headed. There's certainly going to be a market for these things if people can get them to work. Now, Ewan, you've been to a conference lately that's on a pet topic of yours, it's fair to say. Uh, The genetics of evolution, human evolution specifically, is what you've been reporting on this week. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's I love my Neanderthals. I Yeah, I got back from a conference in Vienna for the Society of Molecular Biology and Evolution, which include a lot of researchers studying our ancient cousins, Denisovans and Neanderthals. Denisovans, of course, are those mysterious creatures identified from a tiny finger bone in a Siberian cave. So both of these populations we think have left their fingerprints on our modern human genome. And your story this week looks at what those bits of of genome might be doing for us. Yeah, it's pretty unquestionable that that most people from Europe and Asia have, you know, one, two, three percent of their DNA that comes from Neanderthals. And people from Melanesia and which include like Papuans and Aboriginal Australians, have maybe up to 5% of their DNA from Denisovans. And that's not much, but there's very good reason to think that this Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA did something useful for our ancestors. Because you got you to remember, maybe about 50,000, 60,000 years ago, modern humans, Homo sapiens, were, were kind of streaming out of Africa, uh, hot, uh, humid climate, and they reached, you know, they reached uh, here here in England. They reached uh, Siberia, all, all these places with very different environments. And it's thought that maybe interbreeding with Denisovans provided genes uh, for coping with pathogens, uh, coping with cold climates that humans didn't have. So they could just pluck them uh, from the Denisovan and Neanderthal genomes. That's the idea. And researchers are starting to make some progress identifying candidate genes. And that's how we learned to knit only joking. What is some of the evidence throwing up that we may have inherited genetically from Denisovans and Neanderthals? It's really difficult to identify the, the, the few Denisovan and Neanderthal genes that not only are they doing something, like they're implicated in a disease or in a trait, but they were something that once humans got them, became useful. The best example, and this is something that came out in Nature about a year ago, uh, but was presented at the meeting uh, with a little bit of an update, was uh, Tibetans. Uh, So they live at about 3,000, 4,000 meters altitude. And at that level, you need to have some physiological adaptations to cope with the altitude. And one of them is that you need a way to prevent uh, your blood from becoming too thick. And it turns out that one of the genes that's involved with this 
came from Denisovans. And that's just a great story. And I think in the future, we're going to see a lot more examples like that, where genes that we acquired, and maybe they were just sitting around in one environment, um, suddenly helped humans in, in another environment. Immunity is an area where I think people are seeing lots of signals that Neanderthal and Denisovan variants might have helped us, because pathogens are probably very different uh, in Eurasia than they were in Africa. Ewan, thank you very much. And uh, may I say you're looking very Denisovan today? You see my big tooth? That's all we know about them. We're going on about this population. And we only know them from this tiny little finger bone. Look at the size of a grape. I've, I've seen a replica. And several extraordinarily large molders. Open your mouth. Yeah, Denisovan. All right. Well, thanks very much. And there's more on both of those stories at nature.com slash news. I'm afraid that's all from us this week. Next time, what will it take to stop Ebola from coming back? I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. 